Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, it's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you, if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White, or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I 
have coached leader after leader after leader, and in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult, and, and I just want to find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Today's guest is Cameron Vandendungen. Cameron is the CEO of Sleep Tight and a non-executive director of 40 Winks. Welcome to the podcast, Cameron. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm actually excited to be talking about leadership for a change. I'm, I'm normally buried <laughs> up to my ears in R&D and other bits and pieces and general day-to-day operations. So to, to sit back and have a bit of a, a more general conversation over leadership, um, I'm looking forward to it. I've got my coffee ready and let's get into it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pumped too. So first of all, for listeners, tell us about uh, Sleep Tight and 40 Winks and, and about what you do also as CEO. Yeah, well, for Australian listeners to your podcast, I think 96% of Australians would know the brand 40 Winks, which is a, a company in um, bedding, uh, mattress and furniture retail, so anything in the bedroom. Um, my father was one of the founding members of that group and I jumped into the shareholding and looked after the family interests within the business, probably uh, just in the wake of the global financial crisis. And I, I think that'll probably come up a couple of times in our conversation. Um, Sleep Type was a business that was an idea about 12 years ago. And in the end, I couldn't find anyone that was innovating in and around the space of data extraction or, or where the connected bedroom fit in the connected home. So I built a business and five years later, I'm sitting there with a global patent for um, data extraction off the surface of a mattress. And uh, I don't know how I got here sometimes. <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue into, um, into hearing a bit of your story. So uh, uh, what I'd love to start with is if you think back to childhood, you know, even growing up, are there any moments that have really stuck with you from that season of your life that shaped you to become the leader and the person you are today? It's a really good question, that one, and I've, I've had a bit of introspection lately, uh, particularly as, as each of the businesses start to grow in uh, the the other side of the pandemic, even though we're still living in it. I, I feel like I've turned my attention now to growing and, and looking up for the next five years rather than just surviving the day-to-day. And when you do that, you look back and go, well, what is it that motivates me? Why did I build these companies and how did I get here? And and um, you don't want to get too, too involved in, in navel-gazing, I, I guess, but you do need to understand your motivations and your drivers. And um, I think I was lucky in that I grew up in a family that was a small business owning family. Um, if I go back prior to to my father, my, my grandparents on both sides were quite entrepreneurial in nature. The Scottish side of my family, my mother's Scottish, um, was a bit more, uh, I guess you'd say, um, uh, frugal with the way they live, but they were the hundred pound palms that came out with one um, one suitcase between the entire family and, and they went into baking in Seymour in Victoria. But my father's side was probably more entrepreneurial in spirit. My Oma opened aged care homes when she first arrived in Australia. Um, and my father was you know rolling the dice on different businesses and um, 40 Winks just happened to take off. So I think back early in my journey and it was one of money comes and goes. It was one of 
we're having a really good season right now in retail. Therefore, you know, we've got new shoes and overseas holiday. And then the very next year, it might be, you know, the early 1990s when we've got the recession in Australia and Victoria. And, um, you know, and all of a sudden it's secondhand everything again. And those inter- international trips become trips down the coast instead. So you, you kind of grow up learning that money comes and goes and never to live beyond your means, but always to realize that just wait another season. And it's about persistence. So I think the earliest memory I've got of being, and this does not, does not paint me in a good light, John. I, 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 um, <laughs> I just stress that this probably gives you a bit of an insight into uh, my mindset and how I grew up. Now, I'm, I'm, I go back to being in grade two and every young kid in Australia will remember charity chocolates. You used to get the box of charity chocolates and you'd, <laughs> you'd go home and you'd sell them for a couple of dollars and, um, and you'd raise money. What I started doing was selling them for $2.50, making a profit on it, and then reinvesting my profits back in so I could afford my own chocolate. So rather than asking my parents for it, I sold it for $2.50, and then every four bars I sold, I made enough to buy myself a bar. But I didn't stop there, Jono. My family was in franchising, so I actually got other kids to start selling for $2.50 as well, and then they bought their chocolates back off me. So I don't know why they didn't think to buy their own chocolates, but at the time, I ran a system of probably three or four other kids out there selling chocolates at a, at a, a premium and then coming back and buying their chocolates directly off me. Um, I only got caught because um, one child went to a house of a school parent. They called up and I got called into the principal's office. Now, it's a long-winded story, I know, but it'll, it'll, it talks probably to my psyche of, of you know why I am the way I am in business. Um, the principal took me into the office and called my father. And I remember um, my father answered the phone and, and he said, your son's been caught selling chocolate for 50 cents extra. And my dad goes, well, I don't know whether I should be upset with him because I'm in retail and that's what I do every day. He understands profit. I'm actually quite <laughs> proud of him. And um, But the, the principal said, no, this is charity. You've got to explain to him the difference. So my, my father did sit me down and said, look, I'm really proud of you for understanding profit and understanding the ability to um, to buy something at one price and sell it at another price. He said, but this is a charity that's very different than a for-profit. Um, he made me go back and offer the 50 cents to each of the houses that I'd sold the extra, um, sold the chocolate to. And not one of them made me give the money back. They actually, they all were so lovely to me and they actually patted me on the back more often than not. So I guess the lesson I learned was pick your moment, but there's nothing wrong with a bit of profit. Yeah. I love that story and uh, I always love hearing stories of uh, exactly like you just shared where you can see the mentality, uh, like you said, you know, a little bit a little bit raw, <laughs> but you can see the mentality of, of obviously how you think right from that story in grade two. That's amazing. Oh, look, it's just one of those one of those things. I mean, I've looked at multiple times in my life and, and I grew up again, my father on weekends, even though he was running this business, on weekends he'd, he'd go to markets and he'd buy toys, broken toys off toy stores or off Maya because he was working with Maya before he started 40 Winks. And on the weekends he'd fix the toys and we'd go to the market and I would sell my toys as well. So again, it was his, um, it, this never really worrying about possessions much because possessions come and go. And I think that actually makes you um, predisposed 
to start new businesses because the downside is you lose things. And if you don't really have an attachment to the material things, it makes it much easier to, to roll the dice and risk it. And because um, I've yeah. often wondered, why did I start a, a, an advanced manufacturing business developing medical devices when I have no history? Not one bit in my history is working <laughs> at a 13485 compliant um, QMS or, or actually even been in manufacturing. Yet here I am holding a global advanced manufacturing patent for flexible, stretchable, printable electronics. But it was one of those things where you go, well, no one else is doing it, so I may as well have a crack. Yeah, it's almost like um, you looked around and said, well, why isn't anyone um, buying their own chocolate bars? And uh, But this time, you picked <laughs> well, your moment. <laughs> yeah, well, I, again, I, I guess I'm often told, especially amongst my researchers and the research world, because I sit in rooms with some incredible people and I am nowhere near the smartest person in the room. In fact, the vast majority of times, especially with my researchers, who are mostly professors or at the very least doctors, um, I sit in the room and go, why do you even humor me being around you? Like each of you (laughs) are phenomenally talented, incredibly intelligent people. And here I am, the dunce in the room, and I feel like I'm just a mouthpiece at times. But then you sort of start to understand when they talk to you that there's a skill set that I have that they don't have. And that's an ability to see opportunity markets, understand what a consumer wants, and then build products and services based on what the consumer wants rather than what um, extremely intelligent people think they need. And that's a, that's a very key difference between the two. One is actually understanding the deep need from the consumer or the, the, the uh, customer at the end. And the other is about you know technically perfect products and, and services. And not often do they actually meet. Yeah, I love um, I, I love what you're sharing there. I think it's so true. How do you know the difference? What, what like what have you learnt about how to distinguish between the technically perfect product and the product that people actually want and need? Now you're really going to push me because a lot of mine is um, is gut and actually immersing myself. I, I was asked at a conference about a week ago when I was up on the Gold Coast um, for the Family Business Association of Asia Pacific, and I'm going to give them a shout out because um, family business for me is one of the unsung heroes of the global economy. You know, they're, they're um, often three, four, five generations, and they do a yep. lot of the heavy lifting out there. So I'm just giving them a quick shout out at the moment for anyone involved in a family business. I, I couldn't be any greater of a spokesperson for it. But I was asked the question going, how do you know? How, how do you know what is the right product to go after? How do you know what is the right developmental pathway, commercialization pathway, research translation pathway? Um, I'm not what you would call an academic. So I can't give you a beautiful framework that I've used this system and, and I've used this method to be able to determine what my customer wants. I'm a lot more um, seat of the pants, go with your gut and being a, and more emotive led in my decision making. Might come from the fact that I love Malcolm Gladwell books and I, I'm not sure whether you've read many of them, but um, Blink is one of my uh, one of my all-time favorites of Malcolm Gladwell talking about gut decision making. And that mm. if you trust your gut more often than not, it's better than rational thought. Um, And so I've always gone that way, but I like to surround myself with the customer or with the person, the end user, Um, not always is the end user the customer, I should add, but I I immerse myself. And one thing I I think I am relatively good at is empathy and being able to put myself into another person's situation and actually walk a mile in my mind, which makes it very hard for me with cringe comedy. I, I don't do well with cringe comedy because it literally hits me 
Um, also, massively emotional things really get to me. I, I'm a, a father of two kids, and I really struggle whenever there's any news stories or movies that involve something bad happening to children. It just it yeah. destroys me. Um, mm. But I think that that ability to understand the person deeply, who is very different to myself, has led has stood me in good stead when it comes to developing products and services for them. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I love uh, I love how you've unpacked that. As we fast forward in your story, so we've talked about grade two, but um, I'm wondering when you had your first, uh, I guess, opportunity. Maybe it was sleep type, but maybe maybe it was much earlier, where you really felt like, okay, this is this is I'm really managing a group of people here. I, I'm I'm leading. Doesn't have to be in business. Could be in another shape. Do you remember that first sort of opportunity where you were really the leader in the room or managing a group of people? Yeah, there's been quite a few times in my life, right through school, I've always ended up being an organizer of people. Um, I've, I've felt far more comfortable in member-based organizations with a with a bottom-up kind of, you need to bring everybody on the path, you need to bring them on the journey over and above the dictatorship or, you know, do as I say mentality. I've never, never coped, I didn't cope well under that structure. Um, but I've always found I've always had an affinity with member-based organisations where you need to be a lot more collegiate. You need to you need to work with people um, to bring them along, and and that's people that might be ultra conservative, trying to agree with people that are ultra progressive in their views, whether it's financial or social or whatever it might be. Um, so the earliest ones were, you know, back in school organising. I mean, I remember pitching to try and create a brand new sports carnival for kids that naturally didn't get picked for sports. And um, I organised the school and I went and pitched the uh, the principal and others and, and they didn't they didn't go with it. They thought I was actually making fun of, of um, the unsporty kids creating a, almost, I think it was almost called the unsporty Olympics. So um, it was, but it was an idea of actually trying to give the kids that never got to be the shining lights in a sports carnival an opportunity to compete against each other and be the highlight. So I think the school missed what I was trying to do and thought it was from a, a from a um, position that wasn't um, altruistic. But in in honesty, it was actually because I wanted to give some other kids a chance to be in the limelight. Fast forward from there, immediately after school, I ended up in a role with um, the governing body of Australian motorsport. I used to race cars. Uh, still, I'll be racing at Phillip Island um, very soon just to keep my eye in, but I'm, I'm a bit too old to be a race car driver these days. Being at 41, that's, that's well and truly ancient. But... Um, I was uh, the assistant secretary of the meeting. Now, the secretary of a meeting in motorsport is basically the head of the administration of a motorsport. So they look after all the volunteer officials. They look after all the paperwork, the permits, the applications and other bits and pieces. And I had an incredible mentor who has since passed away, but his name was Peter Nelson. And Peter was um, uh, one of the most instrumental figures in bringing Formula One to Australia. And he basically wrote the rule book or essentially the the entire administrative plan for what a modern Formula One Grand Prix is. The first Formula One Grand Prix of this year was Bahrain and um, Peter taught each of the members of the Bahrain uh, organising committee how to run a Grand Prix. He personally taught them. He taught Malaysians, Chinese, he worked in Russia, he worked all over the world and I got to, to understand at his feet how to run a network of up to 1,200 volunteer officials. So I, w- I was very lucky that I spent, I think I spent five years working as an employee in that structure, but I spent close to nine years as that assistant secretary of the meeting coordinating 12, 1,300 volunteer officials. Now, 
There is nothing harder than coordinating volunteer officials because they don't work for money. They work for something mm. more. They work for an outcome and a desire and something that's, that, that drives them. And if you treat them like a paid employee, they'll walk off the job because they're not there for money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what, what did you learn about how to, I guess, what were some key lessons you learned from him? Um, that you're not always right and that um, that there's a lot of emotion in member-based organisations. There's a lot of fiefdoms that are built and that the core of it, the core of the concern of a volunteer official, and to be honest with you, I've noted it in franchising as well later in my life, so it's the same skill set that's applied from volunteers right up through to franchising, is the fear of either missing out or losing what you've got. That is a, a you know, the Australians by nature, and, and I'm sure it's probably true of many countries around the world, um, when you get to a, a level of comfort in life, the fear turns from, you know, not achieving to losing what you've got. And in volunteer officials, it might be as simple as, and I'll give you examples because it always helps. People that drive, there's, a, there's a, a key role called a course car marshal. Now, these um, officials get to drive high-powered cars that are brought in by a manufacturer, and their job is to literally clear the track at the end of each session, pick up all the reports from incidents around the corners, move official, officials around, and, and basically just be there to look at the um, the quality of the track. Now, at a normal motor racing state-level event, it'll be one course car driver. But at the Grand Prix, you have four course car drivers. The biggest fear every one of those course car drivers has when they first arrive on site is that they're going to lose their job. Even though they might have had it for tw 10, 12, 15 years, they wow. know that everyone else wants their role. So until they get the keys to the car in their hand, they are edgy. They're nervous and they will come and annoy you. Now, if you took it on the surface and thought, why is, let's call him Kevin, why is he annoying me? I've got some massive problems right now and Kevin's causing trouble everywhere and he's agitating and he's, he's creating angst. All we needed to do in the end was get we find a way to get Kevin the keys to his car ASAP. Find a seamless, frictionless pass so he can get the keys to his car and guess what? Kevin as a problem in your organization disappears because it wasn't that he wanted to be a troublemaker, it's that he was apprehensive about losing his role and all it took was a set of keys in his hand and he was happy. So there were lots of things like that, that and I can I can give you perfect examples in business right now in franchising where there's similar things where you yep. don't listen to the words they say, you've got to understand the reason behind or, or, or the, the emotional motivations that drive the behavior and that's probably one of the things I learned early. You know what's funny? I, I can hear in that story that you've just described a, a direct parallel to what you talked about in understanding customers because you've talked about uh, really understanding that what need, what what that person needed was the keys in their hand, not the answer to the 20 questions they might have been asking or, or you know, that was actually what they needed. And um just in the same way that you've described that um, sometimes customers, I, I love what it says in, in the book, Blue Ocean Strategy, which is, I love that perspective. The, the book goes through, you know, a way of strategic planning that's that's data-based, research-based and, and really drives innovation that I love. And one of the things they say in the book is, um, if you go and ask customers what they want, they'll tell you, uh, you know, oh, well, I, I want it to be faster I want it to be bigger, I want it to be better, and I want it to be cheaper. And the truth is that um, just like you said, you've got to look past what they're actually saying and you've got to find out what will actually solve the problem. What's the next 
level or, or one of my favorite quotes from this podcast that someone shared i can't remember who it was but they they said um you know <laughs> uh the light bulb wasn't invented by continuously improving the candle and and, and i think that that probably goes straight to the sleep tight um business of mine uh if you ask someone how do you do falls prevention or or um even start to talk about you know uh obstructive sleep apnea identification or uh, restless leg syndrome or um, even you know anything to do with the quality of sleep through the course of a night uh, people don't know what's out there they don't know technology that's available and so they'll they, they will answer you with what a framework as you say you know in, in adjusting the candle or, or slightly making better the candle they don't understand there's newer technologies coming out and they might have heard of some things but they don't understand it then there's discussions around radar technology so you get the um, electronic components manufacturers that are out there you know whether it's texas instruments or whether it's an infineon that are pushing their their different types of sensors that can be used in this environment but you know with what I've been able to create with my team at sleep tight we've actually gone right back and said why do we need to use this you know over the I shouldn't say over the top because I don't mean it. Radar technology is phenomenal. Don't get me wrong. But the reality is in the pricing matrix in certain categories, it will never fly. Well, not until it comes right down in price. So we looked at a challenge um, and, and we, our first commercial output for Sleep Tight is actually aged care. Even though it came from a, a um, an insight mm. in and around sleep, sleep um, understanding what a good night's sleep looks like from a data set point of view. Because once you get me talking about sleep, Jono, with this thing will blow out to at least four or five hours because it's a huge <laughs> passion of mine. Yeah, no, it's good. But it wasn't about that. It was I, I, I was introduced to this incredible researcher out of RMIT University back in... I want to say 2016, I think it was 2016, 2017. So the Australian Academy of Science had a brand new CEO who's still there to this day, Anna Maria Arabia. She is phenomenal, um, an absolute superstar. She brought in an industry advisor to the Australian Academy of Science to help their incredible researchers start to translate their breakthroughs into commercial successes. Now, Rob Fildes was that person and Rob had seen a young, at the time, associate professor, Madhu Baskaran, um, from RMIT talk about a micro nano research breakthrough she had had where she, her and her team at RMIT had, had created a, um, a, a pattern and had it approved around a technique of applying um, electronics or, or printing electronics onto materials much like contact lenses. So extremely flexible and oh, stretchable. Wow. Mm. Now this was, when she developed this, she developed it with a view to be either a UV patch, so to be able to tell you um, whether you'd had too much exposure and you needed to either get out of the sun or put on more sunscreen. But she'd also developed it and was considering another environmental factor of in mines. So to use it for air quality and to determine whether there's noxious gases around and basically be monitoring at all times on the skin of the individual or on the clothing or whatever it is. Now, when I saw it, and this, is, this goes to the point of needing to understand what an end consumer wants, even if they don't understand what they want, I've been trying to find a way to determine the quality of sleep from a person without having to use a polysomnography machine, which is um, all those electrodes that you get hooked up to if you ever go to a sleep lab. Very much um, uh, cumbersome yeah. to put on, and do mm -hmm. not replicate a good sleep environment, and you've got to go to a sleep lab. And if anyone's had any um, uh, attempt to book a sleep lab, you're on a waiting list for at least 12 months. So it doesn't replicate good sleep. Um, it disrupts you. You've got to go to somewhere that's not familiar to you and you've got to wait over a year to get it done. And I thought, this is ridiculous. And so uh, I looked at what Mardu had done and this, over this one lunch, I said, 
can we take your breakthrough in a micro nano world and you know, I get that it's environmental, can we turn it and look internal for biometric data and biometric you know, markers? Um, and can we take it off the skin and put it on to a mattress protector or onto the surface of a bed? Now, many, many researchers out there would go, nope, that's not the application for this. I was fortunate in my life that I got to meet Mardu, <laughs> and Mardu yeah. said, yeah, we can. So you know, all of a sudden, four, four years later, five years later, because now what, 2022, we're sitting there holding this pattern on something that no one knew even could exist, which is printed, like just using inks, no semiconductors, nothing else. So very low cost when it comes to the actual manufacture of this, an ability yeah. to manufacture on a production line at scale relatively quickly and keep the overhead, you know, the overall cost low, but it's still a system of data extraction that's the closest we've ever been able to get to the skin on a nearable because I never wanted to be a wearable, mainly because, again, understanding that end consumer in a residential aged care facility, the moment you make a carer have to put something on a resident, you impact two people. The resident who does not want to feel like a, a, a guinea pig, um, the yeah. industry calls them consumers and not residents, um, mm -hmm. or, and the carer who's already overloaded with work, you're now adding another element of, um, of grief where they've got to sometimes almost wrestle with the person to make them wear that wearable. That is not good workflow. That is not good for the consumer in an aged care. So, you know, if you've, anyone's had a parent or a grandparent in these places, you don't want them disrupted. You don't want them upset. So I took it off and said, okay, if we put it on the bed, they can't get around it. They don't know we're monitoring them, or well, at least they're told we're monitoring. They have to sign off on it, obviously, but they don't feel like a guinea pig. And yeah. we're able to determine whether there's a person in bed or not what position on the bed they are and in what um, posture they are. And we're doing that without having to attach anything to the body without cameras, microphones, or anything else invasive. Now, no one in that sector knew you could do this. This is now tying it back into that beginning of the loop you mentioned. We just happened to stumble across it by continually looking for an outcome that meant non-invasive biometric data tracking through the course of every night off a bed. Aged care just happens to be the first commercial output. There are so many more, though, in that space. Yeah, what, what I love about your process that you've described there, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, it's actually sort of almost a series of books. That, there's two of them by Greg McEwen, uh, Essentialism and Effortless. I don't know if you've come across those books, but um, in Effortless, one of the things he talks about is uh, looking at a problem or looking at a, uh, a sort of a project that you're working on and instead of trying to remove steps, uh, sorry, instead of trying to make the steps uh, sort of streamline them, actually looking at removing steps altogether by going back to square one and saying, let's start from zero. It's that idea of saying, it's almost like, you know, that idea of budgeting and going like, okay, let's, let's just get rid of everything and start from zero or calendar, you know, go to your schedule and start from zero. And I think it's such a powerful idea because I, I heard you use that sort of phrase that you looked at it and went, well, well, okay, it's, it's not that these radar technology isn't great, but what if we actually go back a step and say, is there a way to do this that we don't even need this? Um, what is right now just, a, you know, prohibitively expensive technology involved? It's, it's exactly right. And and again, I go back to that core and why I've been sort of thinking about why did I do this? Because I've looked up and I'm like, you know, nine, $10 million in on development of something that at any stage could be obsolete if, if someone comes up with a technology that just happens to usurp it or all of a sudden there's a way to make radar technology not need line of sight on the face and not be cost prohibitive. Um, and again, it goes back to that 
uh, not mining if I fail, if that makes sense. I'm not, af- I'm not afraid of the other side of it. So that makes mm. it easier when you do go back to the beginning and say, um, well, what if we try something different? What if we go a different pathway? And um, each, it, I've actually got little gateways in my head of, well, if I don't achieve this, well, then I walk away and what have I lost? At least I've tried something and I've got a brand new experience in life um, as opposed to the fear of the whole thing falling over tomorrow. I think my fear is probably more in, um, I'd just be upset that I wasn't able to achieve my ambitions, but I didn't move on to the next thing and, and find joy in that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that perspective. I think there'd be a lot of leaders listening who know they need to innovate, um, not not in exactly the same way, but they know that they're, whether it's a small business, whether they're an entrepreneur, or whether they're leading a global organization, they'd be listening going, this is the sort of approach we have to like, I, I really believe there'll be a lot of people listening going, we have to embrace this sort of approach if we're going to survive and, and thrive moving forward. Now that you've gone through this process of actually creating and really innovating, um, what, what have you learned? If, if you sort of, if you were going to sit down over coffee with yourself back when you started this, what would you do differently? What advice would you give? So next week, I'm speaking at a conference, um, Cooperative Research Australia. I'm going to Canberra and the topic is looking looking, looking back to move forward. What would you have done differently? It's very funny you ask me this question, Jono. So um, for me, I actually, I, I genuinely, I probably wouldn't tell myself much. There's, there's something pure. There is something amazing in naivety. There is something that I think is incredible for people that are inquisitive. If I knew, if I was able to tell myself everything I'd go through and everything I went through, you know, with a global pandemic. So I remember I'm trying to innovate, create brand new technologies in a world where most of my labs are shut down, where all of my team are cast into the four corners of at the world in some regards. And it was yeah. a nightmare dealing with Sydney, let alone with China. So, you know, it, it was, um, if I went back and told myself what was ahead of me, I may not have started. So for me, I, I actually love the um, the purity of naivety. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. And I think you know something that I think we, I think a lot of us could um, could actually learn from that and, and potentially pick up ourselves is the idea that um, <laughs> you know who is there in your organization because some people won't be wired like you, but they like look carefully around your organization who is wired and thinks like you and and who is completely like I, I find one of the gifts that I bring as a consultant um which is which is funny because uh, it sort of comes back to your point even in consulting I feel like there's an approach where you're the expert where someone comes in I've done this for 30 years let me come in and, and just work with you guys because I know uh, everything about this whereas I uh, because I don't have say in education where I work with a lot of um, schools or universities I'm not an educator so I come in and I've had to flip the script but it actually it actually creates an opportunity like what we're talking about which is to come in and say let me ask the stupid questions like let me come in and question not because <laughs> even necessarily I'm trying to but just because I'm coming in with some naivety about how you do things and I often find that can be some of the most helpful perspective that I bring when I when I work with an organisation. Yeah, and it's really interesting because um, I've I've thought about my leadership style, and that's why when when you reached out to have this conversation, I was pretty happy to do it because I never sit down and think about my leadership style. I, I actually say to people, I'm not a manager. I just I'm not good at managing the day to day of people. So I've started to put 
good managers around me. But the, the difference between management and leadership for me is quite a quite a clear one. You can have good you can have good managers who are not good leaders and good leaders who are not good managers, and then you have those those ones that are both, and I am definitely not both, right? But what I do do well, and I know this because my team have told me this, by setting um, an, a, a, almost like a, a vision and clearly articulating it to the team, I had one team member, and this is probably the proudest moment I've ever had in business. Um, I've got a few of those, but this is in, in terms of my own organization. One of my team members who she had an incredible career before she came and worked with me, she actually told me once, I don't feel like I'm working for a business. I feel like I'm working for a cause. And that that was one of my, um, that made me feel so good about the way I led the business in that it becomes their passion as much as it's mine. And and I'm, again, why I say I'm not a good manager is because I actually, the way I say it to them is I employ adults and I let them make mistakes. I, I, you know, one of the things I say to my team regularly is I'd rather you make a bad decision than no decision because a bad decision at least tells you that's the end of that pathway and go on another one and you keep moving and you keep moving forward. It's when you yeah. stop making decisions, it's when you fear um, what could go wrong that your business goes nowhere and stagnates. I, I, again, you know, I mentioned motorsport before. My background in developing race cars, and this is I played this out in the sleep tight developmental pathway as well, is sometimes you just got to put the car on the track and work out what you've got. You know, otherwise you'll spend ten years with a car in a workshop, constantly improving it, but you, you never yeah. you never turn a lap. So, and, you know, my researchers were trying to do that with the covers at one point, And I said, no, put it on, I want it on the road testing. So, you know, I put it on a roll later and they were panicking and this thing lasted and they went, oh, we didn't expect it to last. I said, well, now we know, move forward, next step, let's keep going, push. <laughs> yeah, and this is, this is where I think um, uh, larger organizations really struggle. And this is something that I, I've chatted a lot with people about on the podcast is the larger you get it's like the it's like the person you mentioned in whose job it is to drive around that car and everyone's jealous of their job and they just want the keys in their hand i think the problem with larger organizations is you end up with a lot of people who are more worried about losing the car that they can actually um, drive around than they are about the mission of the organization and taking it forward and and i feel like the million dollar question particularly for larger organizations is how do we create a culture where people wake up every morning and go into work and say what you've said now, I would rather make a decision. I would rather make a decision that's wrong. I would rather fail than make no decision at all. And for that to be accepted as part of the organization's culture and even celebrated, I think it's easy to talk about, but I think that's really difficult to create in particularly larger organizations. In in large one hundred and fifty percent, and that's why I'm um, I've been thinking more and more, and I was talking to people about innovating, and, and and I'm going to come back to the family business piece because this is something that I think family business in Australia needs to start to embrace, and that is allowing the next generation to sit alongside the mothership, but have freedom to create without the constraints of the mothership. So many of the larger organizations um, in the world right now have divisions where they separate some funds and put some money into an innovation organization where they can play. And I, I think in larger organizations, the more you can encourage your, your spend some time with your, your key leaders over in that part of the organization where it does break the, the traditional, we can't, we can't do anything to impact our share price. We can't do anything that will negatively impact our, um, you know, this quarter's revenue, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this, this is the reality in the big businesses. And I don't think you're going to change that overnight. What you can do 
is start to put a bit of money aside and a bit of time and effort aside and rotate some people through a side business. I, I hate using this term, but you know, for large corporates to create a side hustle for the big business, but rotate <laughs> their key leaders through it because I think it starts to break the mindset and it actually will free them up and free up their thinking before they come back to the mothership where it is tightly constrained and, and, and rightfully so. Yeah, that's that's right. No, I love that idea. And I think that's the sort of creative thinking uh, we have to learn to embrace because it's uh, leaders just need to realize it's it's not working. You know, in larger organizations, we, we you know, we've tried 50 things and they're not working. We have to try something different. And that idea of a side business, side hustle is uh, is great. One of my favorite stories, once again, from the book Blue Ocean Strategy, which which I love. But I think the challenge in this for large organizations, they talk about General Motors and at a time when General Motors needed to be innovating um, in lots of ways, one simple example of the challenge for the executive team, they would turn up to work at head office. And one of the perks of being on the executive team of GM was you would you would get a like the newest series of, of car regularly. When you turned up to work, someone would then take your car and detail it and fill it up with fuel and service it without you even needing to know about it. And the funniest thing is, in in an effort to give their leaders the greatest experience around what it is to to have you know the latest model of car, they became completely removed from the day to day challenges of their consumers because they just never experienced what their consumers were experiencing. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And, and I actually early on, and I can talk about this company now because it doesn't exist in the way it did, which was General Motors Holden. Um, I used to, in my earlier days before coming back into the family business of 40 Winks, I worked at McCann Erickson um, Advertising Agency as a uh, as a an ad, um, oh, account manager on Holden, light commercial vehicles, small, medium, um, and family SUV sort of style vehicles. And um, I remember being so excited to go and work on that account. I was from the world of motorsport. Holden was the be-all and end-all when it came to marketing. When I went inside that organization, there were brilliant people, and I still hold many of them as friends today. But they were so fixated on price and fighting career on price that I think they lost sight of where they sat as a competitive advantage in the marketplace and they lost relevance to the end consumer. And I love what you just said then there about limiting yourself from seeing or walking a mile in the consumer's shoes. You know, one thing I do, and this is even with the 40 Winks business, I mean, this is over you know 107 stores around Australia, um, you know, over well and truly over 300 million in revenue, um, you know, with an ambition of much higher than that. Um, I still test beds myself. I still, and my wife hates it, but I still rotate beds through. I'm, I'm sleeping on a prototype bed that, that adjusts to you based on your biometric data inputs. Again, something that I, I could get sleep tight to feed. But it, it, my kids are sleeping on the Remy system. I just have, I just want to feel it. I want to see it. I want to touch it. I want to understand what the frustration is because there's nothing worse than an engineer designing a car without thought for the mechanic. You know, why would you yes. put the? It have to remove the engine to change the oil filter. It may be designed and it might be designed beautifully, but a mechanic that has to do day to day running will find it an absolute nightmare. It's not practical. So the idea is, if you are developing products for people, you have to understand it. If you don't embrace it and see the challenges they face, you miss out on on one of something that will stop adoption that could be as small as just making a tiny tweak. 
Yeah, I, <laughs> and I think there's a great principle there that you've just unpacked, which is, you know, make sure whatever your product is that you're creating, find a way to, you know, to to sleep on your product. If you're selling, if you're making and designing beds, then you have to be. Don't, don't just be uh, sleeping on the award winner that, you know, your best ever that you've ever made, but be sleeping on those new products that you're trying, that, that, you, that you're putting into people's uh, bedrooms so that you can understand what the consumer's feeling. And I think that's obvious, you know, um, although I, I don't think many people would be doing it like you're doing it uh, because there is a cost, like you said, with your, with your wife not enjoying it. And there's always a cost with that. Uh, but the challenge is whatever your product is, how can you creatively find a way to experience it yourself? Because I, I feel like that's the starting point. If you can if you can find a way to have that experience, like you said, that's where you start seeing the opportunities. Um, whereas when we're in a boardroom, when we're in a at a whiteboard uh, dreaming and thinking, it's so easy to say, oh, wow, how beautifully, how beautiful is that car if we just put the... Uh, you know, the oil filter there and the engine there without realizing that actually, like you said, the mechanic who has to service it needs to take out the engine to change the oil. Well, and, and Jono, next week when I go to that conference, rather than paying for a, a logistics company to transport the bed up there, I'm jumping in a van myself. I'm flying up my uh, my coworker, one of my, my team members, who's going to be helping me display it for um, the federal government next week at this, you know, showing the technology off. I'm actually driving it up myself because I want to. I want to experience the delivery process of these beds, the install process of these beds, and I know maybe I'm just I'm I'm a, I'm a bit different in you know that I, I actually enjoy a bit of manual labour as well. I think it you know it's, it actually makes you feel like you, you know you're not just stuck in boardrooms all day because I, I feel like my life is almost you know <laughs> meetings or travelling to meetings. But um, it, it's something where you go, oh my god, this is actually 120 kilos. This is not easy to move around. It's just little things like that. The the aspect of delivery, what it's like to set it up how much effort goes into it is it too time consuming too expensive so and and rather than ask someone else to do it yeah you know, i'm not really that that big on the you know you should be sweeping the floors at all times you know just to show your team you're willing to do it it's yeah. there's an element of that but i think it goes deeper than that i think it's actually i'm just naturally inquisitive and, and want to experience everything that the uh the product has from you know from product concept right through to the final, you know, the last mile that is that elusive thing that we're all chasing, you know, the perfect last mile experience. Yeah, that that's right. And that's, that is the key to great design and great product design. But it's, I think the message that, um, you know, even for me, I think it's challenging for me with what I do and with, uh, you know, the, the coaching that I do. And it's, it's hard when you're a service, uh, you know, when you're providing a service, but it's asking how can I creatively find a way to experience this for myself? Because, and, and you know, that's why I, I know I've mentioned this book a few times in this episode, but I just love the Blue Ocean Strategy approach because they say there is no substitute for experience. Um, and they even tell a story about a pharmacy, uh, a, a large pharmacy company in the US where they were reviewing their strategic plan and they wanted to look at, really understand what it's like in the shoes of consumers. So their whole executive team did this process that they unpack in the book where they nominate they had someone volunteer from the executive team i think it was the the uh the uh, the head of it for the company who volunteered and they became the sick person that day and so the whole team went with them went to their house and they went through what's okay so 
you know, what would be a day in the life of someone who actually wakes up not feeling well? And the funniest thing is that as they went through it, they realized at all these different points, and this is pre-COVID when, when the book was written, but they realized how how much easier would it be to just turn up to work and just, you know, uh, just push through feeling sick. And they realized because of all the silly little, like, barriers that were involved in in getting getting medicine and waiting for a doctor's appointment and that led to innovation in how they i think one of the things they talked about was the challenge of if you're not feeling well needing to go and get a script from a from a doctor and so they thought well what if we at our pharmacies what if we actually have um uh you know doctors at our pharmacies or or nurses and this idea that someone who's not feeling well can just go to the one place and they never would have thought like that if they hadn't actually mapped out and walked through. It's really funny. They tell the story in the book how they literally called up different doctors and they really went through it. Like, what's it like? And then they realized they couldn't get in to see anyone until around lunchtime and and um, and just putting themselves in the shoes. And I think the, the point is you've got to be creative. You've got to be incredibly intentional. You may have to spend money. You'll definitely have to invest time. But find a way to put yourself in your consumer's shoes and your employee's shoes, which is the other thing that you're doing by driving, uh, you know, driving the bed yourself is put yourself in your employee's shoes and you'll automatically have insight. Um, and, and your people will end up saying things like, oh, thank goodness you changed that. that that's actually made a massive difference when you never would have necessarily known that or they might not have known to ask for a different way to do it. Yeah, and and it's uh, to be honest with you as well. I I actually it sounds so silly. I value their time more than I value my own at times. I'm like, you know, I, I need the director of R and D delivering on this technology product. I can't have him out on the road for seven hours, you know, driving to Canberra from Melbourne, and then another seven hours on the way back again. I thought it's better, it's more valuable for me to have him in there doing the work that he is so ex ex you know exceptional at doing, which is managing multifunctional and cross-functional engineering teams. Whereas I could spend seven hours just catching up on all my phone calls. Cause let's be honest, that's pretty much what you do for most of a, a seven <laughs> hour drive. But um, it, right. it also looks at what's the best use of time of each of the people. And I can make a lot of use of time of seven hours in a car. Whereas I, I'd much prefer my team members doing the job that they are cut out to do. Yeah, this is so good. I, what I'd love to do, Cameron, is um, because I we've touched a little bit on sleep, but I'm really passionate about sleep. Actually, for leaders, I think I think sleep is underrated as a variable in performance as leaders. We're very quick to review our strategic plans. Oh, mate, plans it's, it's and- not even a. There's no no question about that, Jono. There is that much data around right now that yeah. says you are better off rather than burning the night candle going to bed. You will make better decisions the following day, and the data is basically settled on that. Yeah, I know. So that's what I'd love to do is invite you back for a uh, sort of uh, follow up episode. And maybe we can talk more specifically around sleep from, uh, you know, and actually just dig a little bit into one of your favorite topics, but say, okay, leaders, let's tune in and and have a leadership conversation around sleep. Um, So I'd love to do that because I, I feel like we've only just touched on that topic. Whereas I can already tell you've got so much more that we could chat about around that topic. Yeah, mate, look, happy to come back at any stage. And if you get me talking about sleep, uh, I don't think you'll ever get me stopping. It's it's such a powerful uh, part of our lives that no one really understands. And it is, it's the true performance advantage if you can get it right. Yeah, love it. Well, to finish today, uh, because I'm just having so much fun chatting with you, I know I've gone a bit over 
over time, but I just want to ask you a few of these Leadership Express questions and, and get your thoughts. Are you ready? Shoot. So firstly, what's a book that you've gifted to other people? Blink. Uh, pretty much anything by Malcolm Gladwell. Also, Simon Sinek. I love uh, Leaders Eat Last. Yeah, great uh, great recommendations. I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell and Simon um, Sinek. That's, that's great. Uh, what about right now? Are you in the middle of any books that you're loving, any podcasts you're enjoying, uh, any blogs that you, that you follow closely? Um, I'm not uh, consuming as much, but the book I've got in my hand right now, and I've already mentioned his name once, it sounds like I'm just a spruker for him, Simon Sinek, which is uh, The Infinite Game. I'm a huge subscriber to Game Theory. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, brilliant. Love game theory too. Uh, what's a recent leadership lesson you've learned for the first time or been reminded of? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, oh, man. I'm, a, I'm actually shot at the moment on that one. I, there's an element of actually being... There's actually an element of being strong. So I'm, I'm, I'm often... I have been so focused on ideas and, and outcomes that I sometimes forget that you actually need a lot of structure for team members and employees. So even when you do get caught in your visions, one big thing that became very apparent to me is that not everybody likes the unknown and the uncertain and the infinite like I do, that structure is as important for people, if not more important for many people than, than, uh, than the passion and the emotion of, uh, of creating something new. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a, that's a really good thought. Uh, what about this idea of work-life balance, work-life integration that people talk about? Do you have any thoughts on that? What have you found that's been really helpful for you as you pursue that? I've been very lucky that this has been a major focus for me for nearly all of my life. And I always wanted to create organizations that I would have thrived in when I was younger. So when the pandemic hit and remote work and other bits and pieces came in, it didn't actually change my attitude nor my, my team members attitude. In fact, most of them were screaming at me to get back into the office. Um, I've always prioritized flexible, you know, family first approach because people end up working more for you with blood, sweat and tears than just to do a job. But on top of that, I also have been a massive subscriber for a very long time, and I'm talking, you know, a decade or more for mental health days. I tell my team, you know, it used to be sick leave us now, you know, um, carers and compassionate leave or whatever it's called now, the, the appropriate title. But I'd say to them, if you wake up in the morning and your head is not right, you, you struggle to get out of bed, I would much rather you take a mental health day and get yourself right than come into the office. I think it's highly critically important that people take care of their mental health and their well-being. It, it, they're unproductive when they're at work at best. And it's not good for them long term. So I like to create an environment where they feel comfortable that if they wake up and they're not right, stay home. I love it. That's so good. Uh, any movies or TV shows that really impacted you? If you're a, if you really want to understand franchising, um, the founder. I know it's it's a funny movie about McDonald's, but the founder is for those in the franchising game almost a documentary with the way it goes about who makes good franchisees and who don't. So I love that movie. So it's a TV shows, mate. I, I unfortunately don't have as much time for TV shows as I'd like. It's just I feel like I'm, I'm working um, all the time. And if I'm not doing that, I'm making sure I prioritize my kids. Yeah, no, that's good. That's, uh, that's, that's great. I love, uh, I love that recommendation, the founder. Uh, really good idea. Okay, last, uh, last question. If you could only give one piece of leadership advice to a young leader, what would you say? Trust your gut. Absolutely trust your gut at all times. 
it, it's, it's something that people, they second-guess themselves. I Again, going back to that Malcolm Gladwell blink book, there is a reason gut decision-making can be very, very good for you. It goes, it's not just a, a thought, it's not from the brain, it's something much deeper and much more emotional. So always trust your gut and go with your first instinct. Yeah, great, uh, great advice uh, and, and a great place to land. For people who've really enjoyed today and want to find out, uh, you know, want to connect with you online, follow you online, but also maybe connect with your, you know, connect with Sleep Tight and find out about, um, you know, some of the amazing things you're doing in sleep. Where can people connect with you online, Cameron? I'm happy for anyone to hit me up on LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm on every social media platform except for TikTok because I think I'm too old for TikTok. But uh, I'm on basic every every platform you can imagine. But LinkedIn's a great place. I've actually found it and I've been using LinkedIn for a very, very long time. And I'm, I'm, I'm not good at responding to messages because I get too many in a day. But I do like to connect with people that way. And I think that's how we connected, Jono, in the first place. Yeah, yeah, it's true. No, it is. So I uh, would encourage anyone, you know, it's always nice as well if... if if uh, something Cameron shared today has really struck, you know, a chord with you and or really helped you, then make sure you you do drop him a line and maybe a couple of follow ups. <laughs> that's that's what I do on on LinkedIn because I'm the same. My inbox does uh, does get full. So, but uh, wonderful people can connect with you on there. Uh, well, I want to thank uh, our listeners for tuning in and uh, make sure you keep an eye on the podcast because we are going to do uh, down the track I will line up another podcast focused on sleep which I'm really excited about with Cameron I think that that's going to be a lot of fun Uh, but for our listeners don't forget I also have the John O'White Leadership Podcast and the Leadership Question of the Day Podcast they're two other places you can go to listen in and invest in your leadership but I want to finish today by saying a massive thank you to you Cameron for being so generous with your time uh, for sharing great stories, uh, uh, you know, from your childhood about grade two and and selling chocolates and <laughs> and uh, also just uh, just wonderful to get your thoughts on leadership. It's been really helpful and uh, and just really uh, really rich thoughts and and wisdom on leadership. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No worries, and thanks for having me along. Uh, it was good to stop and think back. I, I haven't told that story about grade two in a very long time, so you've got me thinking. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership and leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. 
We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership, and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage, consultclarity.org, right at the top, so make sure you go and get that and download it today. And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. And uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content and it gives you exclusive, limited, early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders. And you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I'm having a great time. And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this. I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and and please do that. And look for me, John O'White, or Clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. Uh, 95% of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.